And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 87 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Friday, July 10th, 2015. Okay, folks, grease is the word. That's right, grease is the word. It's got groove, it's got meaning. It's the time, it's the place, it's the motion, it's the way that we're feeling. As we speak, Greece is a great big question mark. There's no doubt that the country is running out of money and under a tight deadline for European leaders to get back. It requested a three-year loan on Wednesday from the Eurozone's bailout fund, and they didn't even actually say what they'd do in return to make good on what else they owe. And they didn't even really see how much they were looking for. It's a little like going to the bookie that you took out a loan from and saying, yo, Vinny, you know that hundy I owe you? How about a loan for, I don't know, more than that? And if I feel like it, I'll pay some of it back. But breaking literally today, as we record this on Friday, it looks like Greece has now come back around to submitting something that looks even more harsh to an austerity to what Europe was looking for originally. And it looks like Greece will actually stay in the Eurozone. Yay! So it appears, anyway, that basically Vinny didn't pay up and Greece went, uh, yeah, that hundy, what if I actually sell my car and pay some of it back? Still lots of big questions, folks. But here at PNR, we're going to celebrate a bit. We're not going to launch some Indiegogo fund to help Greece out, but we did look and say, here's all the things that we have to thank Greece for. You got your democracy, of course, and the Olympic Games, though Brazil may want to talk to you about that. You got Homer, the Iliad and Odyssey guy, not the one from Springfield. They invented coin money, which is only kind of slightly ironic at this point. Plumbing, that's a good thing, plumbing. Socrates, Pythagoras, Archimedes, and of course, the Euro sandwich, my personal favorite. So Joe and I are ready to Oedipus it up in here and bring the mother of all Troy stories to content marketing news and views into your house. We're going to rant like Medusa's hair about the Achilles heels of marketing, and we're going to rave like Icarus flying just high enough over Mount Olympus to reach the sun. We'll top it off with a this old marketing that'll take a unique angle on what we promise won't be protracted, and we won't make you feel or falafel. Okay, let's get these games underway, and for that, it's time for me to bring in my friend, my co-host, my colleague, my good, good friend, and the Zeus of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you? Did you really say Oedipus it up? Yeah, that- <laughs> I did. Yeah, We're going to Oedipus it up in here, man. I don't know if it's because it's Friday, but that whole thing had me <laughs> rolling for some reason. You know, I just had to, I saw somebody, I, and I can't, for the life of me, remember where I saw this from, but somebody said, hey, Greece, you know, is the size of Detroit. They went bankrupt a couple of years ago. They're fine. <laughs> So, like, is it that big of a deal, what's right. going on? Exactly. I just thought like that. And by the way, we have wonderful listeners in Greece. We do, so indeed. Yes. Nothing, I wanted nothing to celebrate. I wanted to celebrate a little bit of Greek, uh, uh, a Greek, uh, you know, coming back and maybe being in the Eurozone and all of that. And I, I've been to Greece a couple of times, and I really enjoyed myself. I've, so. never, I've never been there. But uh, we love our listeners and readers in, oh, in, the in food Greece. There. The food there is unbelievable. Well, now it's, I'm going to have to make a, you know, oh my we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to do a, a PNR tour to Athens. Let's there you go. That. I like that. A little baklava. Ooh. Oh, come on now. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's like do the it. baklava tour and we'll, that's what we'll <laughs> eat in every country. We, anyways, um, so we should probably tell people why we're recording on that's right. Friday. That's right. Why are we well, recording? We are recording <laughs> yeah, we are re- yeah, we are recording on Friday because we are both about to fly off to St. Thomas for a CMI retreat 
which is going to have all of the folks who work with CMI getting together for a company meeting, at least that's the rationalization, meeting, that's what the kids are calling it these days, folks, meeting where lots of wonderful relaxation, alcohol will be drunk, I'm assuming, um, and great, great uh, gathering and camaraderie will be had for sure. It's a very important meeting. It's a very, it's, very important it's, it's meeting. It's a very important meeting. I'm looking forward to uh, actually hanging out with you and, and seeing my friends. Absolutely. Uh, without necessarily having to. I, I, there's been some multiple discussions about how many frozen drinks that we can actually try. Different kinds of frozen <laughs> drinks. I know you're not the frozen drink kind of guy. I'm not. Tr- I'm not really the frozen drink guy. You can I have will. your tequila or wine in there hand, is. and I will be drinking will my both, share sure. of uh, coladas and margaritas and whatever else i can get into my hands so they'll all have an orange tinge to them but that's right Uh, there will be umbrellas aplenty umbrellas galore all right should we uh should we start the show we should absolutely start the show and our top news story this week comes to us courtesy of neimanlab.org um and it is a story about upworthy and the headline is how upworthy is using data to move beyond clickbait and curation Um, This is a really fascinating piece, um, and it's long, but it's worth the read. And it starts out by talking about a uh, Upworthy Writers piece, um, and the the piece that they pick out is called Five Incredibly Delicious Chain Restaurants You Should Never, Never Eat At, um, and one you should but can't. Um, And basically, it's a really interesting uh, take on this one article because it represents a move by Upworthy to move into longer, higher quality, really, really well-thought-out, well-produced stories. And the idea is, is that as they've sort of evolved, what they've realized is the data and everything that they've been looking at are telling them that the more and higher quality articles that they're putting out, in this case, a 5,000 word story that has more than 65 jokes uh, strewn throughout it. So it was really, really well put together is actually one of their highest performing pieces ever. And so they're moving away from this clickbaity kind of, you know, five reasons to do this and top 10 reasons to do that. And instead into these sort of highly produced feature articles that are long and theoretically designed to get a lot of engagement. So, I mean, what did you think about this? Is this, is this just a, 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 us seeing the trend of what we sort of knew was a gut instinct, you know, sort of thing, or or are we seeing something really revel- revelatory here? Well, a couple of takes. First off, just as a sidebar, the slide share that the new editor—I'm sorry, what's the new editor's name that came from New York Times? Uh, Amy O'Leary. Yes, so Amy yes. O'Leary comes from New York Times. Now she's running the content over at Upworthy, and the slide share that they put together on this. I was fascinated by it. It almost reminded me of, you know, Kennedy saying that, you know, before the end of 1969, we're going to land on the moon. I mean, basically, that's what they're I mean, they have a big, very audacious goal and they're putting the flag into the ground and saying, look, we're not there yet, but this is where we're going and letting everybody know about and this is how we're going to tell stories. And I absolutely love that. Um, We need more of that in business as we go. That aside, I think it is so compelling, and we've been talking about this, I don't know how many episodes, but if you look at look at the traffic, the traffic that what they had, 88, I, I just saw it in front of me just a second ago, 88 million unique visitors up where they had in November of 2013, according to Quantcast. By yep. January 14, that had fallen to 49 million, and in June... Uh, this uh, latest period, Upworthy had a 19.8 million unique visitor count, and that has everything to do with Facebook's algorithm, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree with that, but 
bad. I think it, well, I think that's exactly what this is, right? And I mean, they're the pivoting. Algorithm. We talked about this where the engagement on you know time on site or whatever you want to call it, their sort of in- engagement time is going to become a huge way that Facebook prioritizes articles in the feed. Well, look at it. So here it is. It, it's I'm just fascinated by the number of companies that grew so large so fast like your upworthy has on facebook like your demand media did with its uh you know google practices and search engine optimization practices and then both those companies google and facebook they changed their algorithms and then all of a sudden you if you build your company based on somebody else's laws you're stuck <laughs> right. so now they've got to go back and they've got now that all that aside, now they're stuck. Now what are they going to do? I really, I I hope this works. Like I'm really pulling for them because I love this whole idea of we can really tell quality stories and we can we can leverage amazing data at the same time to tell the best stories we can possibly tell. I think it. I yeah. I mean, I I think you can't. Regardless, I don't think you can go wrong with that strategy. I mean, it's just it's really a question of how all in do you go on that. Uh, you know on that effort, right? I mean, you know, do they still do some level of the clickbaity, you know, you know, this guy had the worst day ever. What he did at a minute and five is going to have you in stitches. You know, I mean, how many of those are they still going to do versus putting their effort into, into this, you know, into this sort of higher quality, I mean, much higher, I mean, 5,000 words is like no joke. I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a feature article. That's a meaty article as we would call it but but all that aside and this kind of goes back to you know let's let's our target audience of brand marketers and what they need to do with this i get concerned about anyone fighting for traffic and they're fighting for eyeballs i mean they're telling stories for eyeballs and when you tell stories for eyeballs it's very very tough and Mm -hmm. if you look at how wide uh the the buzz feeds and the upworthies of the world are getting to go after so many eyeballs and then try to monetize those eyeballs for the you know the 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 cheapest click possible let's say very just very tough to do i would rather be a niche publication and i would actually think that huffington post is actually better positioned because they've split that you know if you look at huffington (laughs) post it's really it's really not just one blog right it's like 200 blogs with 200 different distinct content niches and 200 different audiences. Now, that's a model that a big marketing, a big brand can get behind. Upworthy, I'm just, you know, I don't know. I, I think the, what are the audience? Uh, people? <laughs> I right. mean, that's it. <laughs> right. People yeah, on right. the web. <laughs> that, well, yeah, I mean, it's young people. But I, I mean, know, I mean but and, you, and they can draw. Yeah, no, they I, can draw a bit the, of it. The, the slideshare goes into it in depth as to that's their, this is their mission right. and to really raise, uh, you know, stories that uplift humanity. And I totally, I totally dig, I'm totally down with that <laughs> on a Friday afternoon. I'm totally down oh, with it. Absolutely. But, uh, well, especially given their name and, you know, I mean, and you wonder, I mean, I hope this was their plan all along. You know, I hope the idea was build this giant audience with this sort of bait-worthy content that sort of pulls people in. And now that you've got this audience, sort of then introduce this idea of really high-quality feature production-length sort of stories that sort of lift humanity. And, I mean, if if that was the plan all along and this is just sort of the second chapter of the plan being executed, my hats are off to them. I mean, I you know – it's hard to tell whether this is sort of a pivot or whether this is sort of something that has been in the in the scheme all along. But if it is the if it is the latter, I'm 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 truly impressed. But think about it. Think of it this way. And you and you and I have had this conversation, uh, let's just say, over a drink or two on occasion. <laughs> but if you right. think about 
in 10 years, who are the media companies, who are the news companies that we are getting our information from? It could possibly be your Vice Media, BuzzFeed, Upworthy. Sure. I mean, you know, they are they are the vanity fairs of our time. But right? they but, I mean, they, but to you, that point they've all pivoted. They've all pivoted. I mean, BuzzFeed could, Fair you, enough. Could, you can make a you can make a case that BuzzFeed hasn't pivoted all that much, but how much they are investing in real traditional journalism, real news, Vice is an amazing. I mean, how many people they have all over the world covering news yeah. is beyond me. And then now you've got upwardly going this direction too. So it's almost like, hey, how do we make money right away? How do we get going? And then how are we going to pivot into a real business model that actually adds to humanity? Oh, yeah, so. right, exactly. And hope, yeah. And I mean, I mean, and well, and to the point I was trying to make earlier is is that pivot was that pivot planned or not? I I, I don't know, and I I really really hope it was. That's I really was smart. Something. You'd have to be well, maybe there. I mean, maybe that was just I, yeah, really right? super I mean, smart. You know. I mean, absolutely. It would be it would be really that. cool. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, for a takeaway for the audience here, I mean, on the certainly on the marketing side, you know, this not this reminds me. I got a question this week through email. Somebody emailed me a question and said, basically, what's the right mix of curated content, originally created content, syndicated, sort of aggregated, sort of you know, what's the right mix? Where's the study that shows what the magic mix is of all those things? And I was like, there. I've never seen anything empirically on this, and I would be highly suspicious of anything that was because it's really going to depend on your vertical. It's going to depend on what you do for a living. It's going to depend on your audience. It's going to depend on everything. On your resources. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, are there some trends? You know, for example, I see a lot more financial services companies really focusing on original content because – that which they can curate, quite frankly, is just available in so many different avenues. Well, plus um, they don't want to condone know. because it, those that have regulations, they don't necessarily want exactly. to curate somebody so, and say that this is is condoned by our company, which is a that's whole right, other. That's issue. right. So there's so there's really no magic mix here, and so that really gets to you know this pivot, right? So when you're in a, your content marketing. Uh, initiative and strategy and executing against it. It's you've got to think like this, like what Upworthy's doing here, and watch it. And and whether you can plan a pivot out for six or eight or nine or a, a year out and say, you know what, for the you know for the first nine months of our existence, our existence is going to be about building audience, and we're going to do that through being controversial and funny and short, snackable content that sort of builds buzz, wants to be shared, very, very clickbaity, that kind of thing. And then we're going to pivot and nine or 10 months in, and we're going to start delivering this really valuable stuff that quite frankly would be hard to get people over the threshold of initially, right? So if we can earn the permission to be in their inbox over nine months, well, then we can pivot into something more meaningful and deep at that month 10, month 11, month 12. And I'm making all those numbers up, obviously, but that's a really interesting strategy. Now, or just quite frankly, realizing that the the clickbaity stuff isn't working and then moving to this, you know, moving to something else, having the flexibility and 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 uh, agility to move to another editorial strategy. Just because you're doing something doesn't mean you can change you can't change it. The 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 last thing I'll add on this is I get asked the question because I you know, I talk about content marketing mission statements all the time. This is maybe perhaps the best content marketing mission statement I've ever seen put together that slide share. Because basically the, the whole mission is stories for a better world, but then they go on and how they're going to execute that into a, a strategy that's fairly easy to understand. You don't know you don't know what the magic mix is going to be in some of these things, right. but they at that's least right. say this is the plan and the direction. 
Fantastic. So if anybody's saying, hey, I don't have a content marketing mission statement for my for my content marketing strategy or whatever, the go case, look at this. This is yeah. fantastic. And, of course, it'll be in the show notes as well. We'll link to it so you can take a look at it. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Moving on to our second story of the show. Um, and this comes to us courtesy of iMediaConnection.com, a publication that I have a fondness for because they're located here in my hometown, but and one that we don't get to see too often here. Um, so just a shout out to the iMedia folks if you're out there. iMediaConnection.com and this article by Rebecca Lieb, who is a sort of certainly a friend of the show and a friend of CMI. Um, and she writes an article that is titled, Who Should Handle Your Content Marketing? And she goes through basically answering a question that she poses in the beginning where she says, is content a DIY project or is it better left to professionals? Um, and really what she's getting to is should we insource or should we outsource? And she talks through and she says major brands want to create content marketing in-house. And so as she points out a couple of years ago, she actually conducted research and asked major organizations such as Nestle and GE and Adobe and IBM and Coca-Cola what their preference was, do it yourself or farm it out to an agency. And every single one of them said their preference was in-house. But we also noticed that there's no shortage of agencies that are out there now handling this for a good many of those companies, including the aforementioned, quite frankly. Um, none of those companies that we mentioned earlier are doing it completely in-house, whether it's an ad agency or PR agency, a storytelling agency, a content marketing shop, a publisher, content studios, all these people are now contributing to this sort of mix of people who are actually helping brands execute. Um, and it's funny because I just got back, my, the trip I was just on was actually about this very, very topic. Um, so I'm interested, get to your take, Joe. I mean, what do, what do you think, what, what do you think about the article and what do you think about this sort of discussion of in-house versus outsourcing the idea? Well, I think Rebecca covers the key points. Uh, I, I think that it's a question you simply can't answer. The answer is both. The answer is almost always both, depending right. on what the needs are. I mean, and, and Rebecca goes through this, like, what do you really need? Like, specifically, what's your success criteria? Um, what, uh, by the way, I love the point that she makes that if the agency, if you're looking for an agency and they're not practicing content marketing, then go somewhere else. I mean, that's that, right. That, that's, that's like right. the first step. I always say, like, when we, when we recommend agencies, I always say, hey, like, if you have a list of agencies, your first thing is, are they doing it themselves? Are they really right. believers in it? So that would be the one thing that I would talk about. But... I I don't see this changing for a long time where some of it can be absolutely in-house. And, you know, our good friend Jonathan Mildenhall, who was, at, you know, Coca-Cola and now at CMO at Airbnb, he talked a lot about the fact that, yes, they want to have uh, sort of storytelling um, inside the DNA of Coca-Cola with their Coca-Cola Content 2020 project and all that stuff. But he said, frankly, that it, many times they need an outside perspective and they need an outside production team to do these things and you yep. and, and julie fleischer says the same thing at craft there's some things that we inherently need to do inside and something is just not suited for us to scale up and teach internally whether that's a video series or something like that whereas maybe an ongoing podcast series could be internal so i i just you know we've we've handled this question all the time i'd always say well <laughs> the answer is always it depends uh, but I don't know. Do you have a specific take on this either way? I, well, here's what I would say, is, and this is something what you know that we teach in the master class, and when we do client advisories, we talk uh, about a lot about, which is 
this this you know it's it's funny i think what you'll find in common with when you know when julie says you know there's things that we need to have in house and when jonathan mildenhall says there are things that we inherently need to have in house and when you sort of hear what their sort of need is what they're really referring to is as jonathan said that storytelling in their dna and that that i think is one of the most important things because if we outsource the, uh, the the entire thing, the process of content marketing as sort of its own sort of thing, to, and we outsource all of it to various agencies or even one agency, we inherently don't think of enough of it to build it into the institution of the company. Yeah. And so, so that piece of it, call it the strategy piece, call it the institutionalized of the knowledge or the storytelling, whatever that sort of means to you and your business, that's the part that has to be inherent. Now, does that mean you have to hire a bunch of people and create a group and all of that? Maybe. It may not. You may just need somebody whose job it really is, and this is what we really get to in the masterclass when we talk to you about making content a real function, right? Not just the byproduct of what everybody does, but sort of a real active strategic function in the business. Then if you understand that, if you have a true understanding of what that really means to your business, like Julie does at Craft, well, then you understand which pieces could and should be outsourced. You know, because, you know, if you go through, there's that wonderful case study on CMI's blog, which talks through how she sort of segments her different purposes of content and how it gets segmented out to different agencies, including, you know, a part of it gets uh, assigned to her Marcom team, part of it gets assigned to a social agency, part of it gets assigned to a, a content agency, and some of it gets assigned to their brand agency. And all of these agencies can have varying roles. But the thing that's really missing still is this front part to understand how strategically the story fits into the construct of the business. And that's that's the most important thing, I think. Well, I was talking with uh, Jay Bear earlier this week about, you know, Jay. Papa Bear. Papa Bear. Uh, Jay, Polar Bear. Jay's, Jay's doing a uh, mini keynote uh, at Content Marketing World, and we were talking about how we're going to position that, uh, you know, with myself coming out and then Christina Halverson, then David Beebe from Marriott, and then Jay. And I don't know how we got on the topic, but I was talking about Don Schultz and how Don has said forever, you know, Don Schultz, the father of integrated marketing. Sure. Yep. And he always said, look, everything in the organization can be duplicated by some other competitor, some other company, except for the way you communicate. So if you outsource your content exactly. marketing strategy, right. you're outsourcing the soul of your organization. I mean, that, and that's really what we're talking about here. So I love the point that you make that you, you have to, to tr- keep it as part of the culture or try to infuse that into the culture as much as you can. But the thing that when you were talking about that, about Julie and how she does it, the thing that I thought of was, you know, I remember when I was at Penton, we had 50, oh, so about 50 magazine media brands. If you looked at all the content we created every day and then all throughout the year for those 50 brands, the majority of content created was not created by staff. Right. That's right. And I think people... People think I think people automatically think that oh you know BuzzFeed Vice Media Content Marketing Institute whatever they think oh it's created by staff no it's not the strategy is done by staff some of the content is created by staff but most of the content is done by other people right and I think we sometimes we forget that that we think oh no we have to do it internally no we don't we have to keep the strategy inside and then we find the best resources we can depending on what the strategy is so there you go that's right. That's right. And, and, and often in marketing's history, we've done exactly the opposite of that. You know, we've outsourced the strategy so they could teach us how to do so the execution. True. 
you know, where we, you know, we bring in the big consultant or we bring in the big advertising agency and we say, give us the strategy and they give us the strategy and then we go, great. Now, how can we execute it? And it should be quite the reverse, I think. That's a great point. That is, yeah. I mean, yeah, you technically, if you've got a strong strategy inside, you've got somebody owning that strategy, you can out, you could literally outsource every other part of it. As that's long right. as you've got a good handle on the on the strategy and good project that's management. Right. And that's not to argue that you shouldn't hire a consultant or an agency to help you with strategy or to help you with planning. It's to say that you've got to take ownership of it as well. That's that's right. that's, that's my point there is, is that I'm not saying that don't hi- don't ever hire an agency for strategy. I'm saying don't hire an agency for strategy and abdicate responsibility of it. That's that's where you get tripped up. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Uh-oh. I thought Tell it was me, Sunday. Okay. Tell me. All right. It is, it's close to Sunday. All right. Moving on. Okay. Here we go. This is – if, 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 if you were ready for your rant, here it comes, folks, because this article comes to us from Digiday. Um, and the headline here is, It's Just Advertising Dillweed. Um, I hesitate. This it, Joe, it, folks, Joe wants to do this story. I don't want to do this story because I hate giving this guy any more press. We don't than he have gets, to do the story. No, no, we'll do the no. story. We'll do the story. But I'm. It's it's an annoying. It's an annoying thing. He's like a fly. This guy just buzzing around. Anyway, so the story opens up with during advertising week here in New York City. Uh, the word content was spoken, tweeted several trillion times. He may be exaggerating there. Um, many more times than advertising, certainly. Um, and even the president of the United States, Kevin Spacey, said it, right? So he – obviously, Kevin Spacey gave the same speech there as he gave at Content Marketing World and, and, and talked about the power of storytelling. It's become such a sexy buzzword, this author says. Everything wants to be content now, news, ads, marketing, porn, infographics, white papers, Brooklyn, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes on to then – equate branded content with I don't know what, but basically he doesn't like it very much and goes on to say, basically, it's all just ads. It's all just advertising. So so what say you, Mr. Polizzi, to this guy? Uh, well, you know I'm not a fan of the term branded content sure. at all. And ha- Well, let's put it this way. I don't <laughs> mind branded content. I, I mind it getting confused with content marketing. If that's, branded, yeah, that's the real yeah, issue. If brand, branded content, in my opinion, is telling stories telling stories about the brand for some kind of marketing result that's what we're going for right uh, and and I look at that branded content can be very very important and we okay let's we just talked about Coca-Cola their Coca-Cola journey I saw you know I remember the article they had about the history of the Coca-Cola bottle if you are a Coca-Cola enthusiast and you are a fan of Coca-Cola that's really good content it's really important exactly. I think it helps that relationship if you don't care anything about Coca-Cola, it's pretty worthless. Right. So I think it, – it's a, from that standpoint – It's a spectrum. It's, it's, a, it's a spectrum. Very good word. Spectrum. Yeah. I like that. Good job. Um, Thank you. But if we go on so, – so basically it goes on and, and you can read the article if you want to. But it goes through and says basically uh, branded content is – uh, a lot of uh, negative things, and it's stupid to try to even define it. And really, what it is is advertising. But this is what I wanted to ask you, Robert. Advertise technically the definition of advertising. Doesn't it have to be paid? Isn't advertising a paid media? Correct. Well, by all accounts, by by certainly by everybody's common definition, when we think of advertising, it is a paid placement of a paid piece placement. of media. That's right. You know. It is a you know you you are paying for the placement of a piece of content and or 
a, an ad. It could literally be an image, so I don't want to say it's always words. But, but it is a paid placement of some piece of content that is meant to communicate the value of our product or service in order to persuade someone to actually try it, buy it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yes, it, if, I, if I get what you're getting at, which is that is the true difference here. If Can we use content in a way that earns our way into the attention span of our consumers? And that is what is at the heart of content marketing. Can we create value with content that earns its way into the yeah. hearts and minds of our consumers so that they want to engage with it? They want to consume it. They to get value out of it and then ultimately discover that we are the ones who produced it. And it provides a shared set of values or provides some sort of alignment into how our approach will solve their need or want and makes them ultimately more receptive to the advertising that we might present in front of them. Well, I love I love Andrew Davis's definition of this because he talks about you know branded content all the time and he says branded content is content created for the brand uh right he said exactly. he said what we really want to do we want to talk about content marketing which is in, and create content brands, brands or content right, created exactly. for an audience which i love that differentiation point so and we don't have to talk anymore about the article i think it's you're right it's it's was very much created to get attention i just I continue to see these articles and we could have we could have probably added another five or six articles even this week about the con- and maybe we'll maybe well, somebody we will talk about we, one yes, later i'll today. be ranting about one later about yes the, exactly there's I'll still be, a long I'll be, there's still be still a long way to go i know i know it's frustrating sometimes but it's yeah it's exactly right we we trying to get this definition out there i mean you know and look we're not even saying that this is a finite definition but we're just sort of saying look just understand you know independent of how you define it just get it right don't you know don't make it something else (laughs) you know this is i mean we we ranted about this uh i don't know a couple of shows ago where we were talking about a particular software vendor that was sort of redefining what content marketing was in order to distance themselves from it. And it's like, I don't care if you distance yourself from content marketing or that you look at yourself broader than content marketing or if you look at content marketing as a particular thing, but then don't redefine it to suit your purposes. You know, in other words, don't take my definition and tell me that I'm wrong because it doesn't suit your purposes. So you're going to redefine it to tell me why you don't like it. <laughs> that, that's not... I don't that that I won't stand for. <laughs> if I have another person come up to me and say, "Hey, you know, content marketing and inbound marketing are the same thing." I'm going to lose it. I'm going to like really I'm like, "No, I'm going to hit somebody." Here's my you know my my pat answer for that now. I just look at them and I say, "No, not really." That's all I, that's all I have. I don't have anything better to say. No, not really. And then I just I just keep walking. <laughs> I don't have anything. <laughs> it's yeah. just like no, there, there's, there's, there's a difference there. But anyways, yeah, we've talked absolutely. About All right, moving on to our next uh, story and um, and our last story um, of of the show, which is uh, Americans apparently, Joe, are furious with us as marketers. They're furious. Oh, no. They says the headline with marketers. This comes to us a couple of different sources for this. One is and a big hat tip here to Mark Schaefer uh, and uh, businessesgrow.com dot um, for uh, uh, for the, um, the the podcast that he has there for t- uh, tipping us off to this wonderful study. Um, well, it's a study. I'm not sure how wonderful it is, but anyway. 
the way that he opens up and says, you know, if you read through one piece of research this year, it's got to be this new report from the University of Pennsylvania on marketers, consumers, and privacy. Um, the research is important not just for its surprising revelations about privacy, but also for its unapologetic scolding of the way marketers have been misleading their customers. Uh, the new Annenberg survey results, which, of course, we will link to both the podcast episode um, as well as the actual study from the University of Pennsylvania – um, there's no registration or anything. It links right to the PDF there. Um, I will say, and then I want to get your take on this, Joe. I will say I've read through about 60% of right. the study I wanna, itself. I want to hear your results. What do you think? Yeah. So, well, you know, so here's the thing. It, basically, um, it, it, uh, scolding is a nice way to put it, right? It is, it is a very one-sided opinion here. Um, that basically says, you know, it, it takes a long time to say this uh, too, but but in, in ever sort of detailed ways. And they actually, you know, to their credit, they actually went out and really did a, a, a you know, a, a study. I didn't get too much into the methodology, so you'll have to sort of look at that and, and see what you think of it. But basically, the, the subhead here is how marketers are misrepresenting American consumers and opening them up to exploitation. So they're, you know, so they're right up front that this is not going to be terribly unbiased in the way that they um, in the way that they present their findings and what they really sort of touch on is this idea that if you ask Americans what they you know it, it, are they willing to trade their information for a discount and they really focus on this idea of discounts and the idea that retail and I guess it's mostly retail focused of if you look at you know would you get a discount would you trade your private information for a discount or would you trade your private information for things like free Wi-Fi um, you know, as you're walking around the store. And of course, as you might expect, when they ask that question in that way, Americans go, well, no, I don't think that's fair. I'm not going to trade my personal information for a discount or trade my personal information for free Wi-Fi as I walk around the store. And they get very high numbers, 77% in one case and 86% in the other. So basically, their conclusion is, why then do they actually do it? Because if you then switch it around and you actually give people a discount, they will do it. They'll actually you know, provide their information or they'll provide their information for free Wi-Fi in the store. And so their conclusion after all of this, and this is where I had sort of goes off the rails for me, is their conclusion is, well, Americans are just resigned to this, right? They just understand that this is the new reality in which they live, that in order to get something for free, they got to give away their private information. And so they hate us for that, but they're going to do it. They're going to they're do it because – and so – we, as marketers, are completely misrepresenting this when all of the other studies, and they cite a number of them, when they cite a number of these studies and the studies that say, listen, Americans actually will give up their information for various things of value, um, is actually untrue, that actually Americans are, are really, really despising this, and marketers are trying to pull a fast one over government regulators because government regulation should actually regulate this and blah, 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 blah. That's really the point of the entire study. And then that goes through all of the details of the actually how they ask the questions and stuff. I mean, do you – so any feeling which way? Does no, it I, well, I think – no. I mean, look, I think painting – you know, as we've said before, painting marketers as sort of some supervillain that are up in our ivory towers petting our white cats and saying, hey, we're trying to steal your data so that, you know, I mean, I think and I also think that it's one of those things where Americans care much more about their privacy of their data than they have before. There's no doubt about that. But they care much less about it than they say they do. 
Um, and so, you know, and this is true if you look at Facebook, if you look, you know, the, the usage of Facebook, the usage of any of the social media channels, this is not a new thing. Catalina marketing with grocery stores has been around forever. So if you use loyalty cards yep. in grocery stores, if you use any sort of loyalty program in any retailer, your data is being tracked every single thing that you do. And that is an you – know, so this is not a new phenomenon of giving up personal data to get either discounts, better experiences, or more personalized experiences. The only thing now is is that it's becoming more and more and more to the forefront. And so really the question is, is how much do Americans value their privacy? And apparently I would – this is what I would argue that this study actually shows is Americans actually don't value it very much. It's not that they're resigned or that they hate doing it. They actually just understand that for the most part, in order to get some sort of personalized or discount, they're going to have to do it. So call it resignation or call it just, you know what, I'm okay with it. You know, I think that's the part that is bothering me is, is that they're sort of ascribing an emotion to it where I'm saying, you know what, it's probably a range of all of those things. It's a range of, I hate you, but I'm going to give you my data, or eh, I'm going to give you my data because I really want the free Wi-Fi, or you know what, I'm cool with that. Take, you know, like me, I'm, I'm actually pretty cool with giving my data over for something that I want. And, you know, I'm, I'm making broad assumptions that the, the retailer or whoever I'm giving my data over to is going to use it to sell me stuff, but I'm kind of okay with that. Well, it's like, it's like uh, well, whoever's listening, your, your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. It's like, I really don't like, I really, actually, sometimes I really hate that they do certain thing, but I'm not going to change anything. It's all, right. <laughs> it's like, I'm, right. I'm still going to stay with them. It's well, all you know, good. And it's funny because there's a great article. So we did, maybe I'll try and find this for the show notes. It's not terribly related to this, but it's um, Tom Goodwin, who I've talked about on the show before. He's the uh, strategy guy for Havas, English uh, guy, really, really smart, writes all that stuff. Um, he wrote a LinkedIn post this week where he talked about how there's this sort of array of our feelings toward brands. And, you know, if you think about it, there are so many brands that we just really don't like. You know, it's not like we'd sit down and have a beer with these brands, but we deal with them because, you know, quite frankly, they eh, they provide a pretty good service. You know, the airline that we have a loyalty program energy with, energy companies, I, I, yeah, energy companies. You know, the gas stations. You know, the the all of these brands that we sort of continue to do business with, in some ways begrudgingly, and in some ways, like you know what, we just sort of accept what they do because it makes our lives easy. He uses the example. He says, "I hate Uber." But I use Uber everywhere because the service is so great. Yep. Right? You know, and it's those kinds of things where we begrudgingly sort of, you know, either use the service or use it on the, you know, knowing that we are actually, you know, quote unquote, giving a little bit of our soul away doing so. I, I just, I don't buy the sort of draconian nature that, you know, that marketers are inherently evil and, and trying to fool everybody. But it just, I don't, I don't, I don't. One, I don't think we put that much thought into it. And two, I think we're just all trying to make a living. The one thing that I wish more of these studies would do, and, and you read it. I, I skimmed over it. You read the study. Maybe it said this. I, I seriously doubt it did. But go into a little bit of history and say, look, yes, there's more data and there's more behavior that we can track than ever before. But this has been going on forever. They do. I mean, They touch on it. Okay, yeah, they subscription do touch on services. They do touch on it. There's a whole right. – in every publishing division on the planet, there's a, there's a group called Ancillary. And that right. group sells data. They sell every piece of data they have that they get. You know, when you fill out a subscription form, it says, hey, we only send this to qualified subscribers. 
they sell your data. That's exactly yeah. what they're doing with it. Yeah. So they can they make actually, money one off of the, you. Yeah, one of the questions in the study is actually, are you aware that when a website has a privacy policy, that the privacy policy doesn't guarantee you that they're not going to sell your stuff? Yeah. And apparently a lot of Americans are unaware that that's what it means, um, which, you know, I mean, whatever. I, is it, it's like, yeah, yes, I get it. You know, many Americans are unaware that having a privacy policy does not mean that we actually keep the data private. It just means we're going to disclose to you what that privacy will be. So, but we don't read the things that we click through anyway. I mean, how many people read the terms and, you know, uh, terms and conditions of the software that you install or anything that you buy? I mean, does anybody read the terms and conditions of the TV that you just bought or, you know, and go, ooh, you know, I've, 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 I've you know. A little late now you're reading. This is going to be adjudicated in Connecticut if I actually have a problem with it. So, ooh, I'm going to actually negotiate that part. No, you don't do that. Honey, what are you reading? I'm reading the terms and conditions off of that 42-inch exactly. plasma we just bought. Exactly. So it's going to be a late night because this thing's got some heft to it. <laughs> there was also a there was a there was a there was a thing on uh, Facebook or, or LinkedIn the, the, this week that talked about the the company that put in a prize into their terms and conditions a five thousand dollar prize, oh, and it took like good. you know ten years for somebody to actually claim the prize. It's pretty that's good. Fascinating. Yeah. All right, so we should move on, yes? I think so. All right, well, let's move on to our... So speaking of, you know, speaking of getting paid... Ooh, um, is and, it that time? And, pissing, and, and, and making, our, making, making people mad at us. It is time for our wonderful, wonderful sponsor. Yes, yes, yes. Ring the bell. This old ding, marketing ding, ding. Da, 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 this week da, da. is sponsored by our good friends at Acrolinks, a platform da, 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 da. that helps the world's most recognized brands create da, 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 more engagement. Da, da, da. <laughs> I can't do that while you're... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just what is going. I'm just hearing it in the background. Like, uh, what, what's going on? Uh, let me let me start that from Acrolinks, platform that helps some <laughs> world's most recognized brands create more engaging, more readable, and more enjoyable content. It's offering a new report that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. Hopefully, you've already downloaded it. If you haven't, you have to do that. The Global Content Impact Index, which shares the results of a detailed analysis of the world's content. Like the world's content, not just like your content or my content. The The world's world's It's a big study using a proprietary linguistic analytics engine. The software reviewed 150,000 individual public-facing web pages from 340 companies around the world. That represents 20 million sentences and over 160 million words. And Robert and I actually checked. That was, they actually asked us to count all of them, and that's we what we came up with. We just we, did. we just finished. Absolutely, the results were really surprising. Actually, you need to go download this at bitly. Wonderful, wonderful paper. Yeah, bitly.com yeah, slash acrolinks with an X dash global dash index. It'll be in the show notes on iTunes as well as thisoldmarketing.com. That's a really helpful. <laughs> and, and again, we talked about this last week. If you are doing business or let's say you're creating content globally in some way to try to talk to people that are not in your country you need to download this it's really important for global companies uh download it when you can bitly.com slash acrolinks dash global dash index and thanks to acrolinks for all their support absolutely to thank you to acrolinks for that aren't aren't in in some ways aren't you and i both proprietary linguistic engines I mean, we do linguistically 
engine things in a proprietary. I don't know. Anyway, I'm yeah, only it's, that a no, no, a, a yes, but only on Tuesdays. <laughs> I want to get a T-shirt that says I'm a proprietary linguistic engine. Yeah, it, but I, it depends. It depends on what I ate during the day. <laughs> What fuels that engine? <laughs> All right. It's your favorite part of the show, folks. It's our rants and raves section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that makes us say, you know, we feel like grease at the end of a negotiation. Or by saying something like, you know, you're a true Bulgarian, aren't you? Anyway, so uh, let's see. Who has the first rant oh, or rave? It's, it's I guess you. it's me because it's I have this old marketing this week, don't I? So I have a very short rant. Um, I, at least I think it's short. Um, I, 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 I'm likely to get myself into trouble if I take it too far here. Um, this comes to us, and big hat tip here to Nanad Senek for uh, uh, pointing this out to us and sending it on. <clears throat> it comes from Harvard Business Review, and the first thing I have to say is, and the headline here is, Comparing the ROI of Content Marketing and Native Advertising. Um, so it had my attention, right? So it had my attention right away. Um, and it's at Harvard Business Review, which doubly has my attention because, and I'm not even kidding you, Joe, I have been working on a post and an article, um, you know, as, as many people may or may not know, I certainly, you know, one of my bucket lists is to actually get published in HBR. So I've, you know, I've, I've, I've wanted to publish there because I highly respect that magazine. I read it every month religiously, cover to cover. It's one of my favorite thought leadership magazines out there. Um, and this disturbed, this was like Alderaan getting blown up. There was a disturbance in the force when I read this article. Um, because quite frankly, this was like the, reading this article made my eyes burn. Um, the article starts out by saying many companies today rely on content marketing and native advertising to gain visibility for their brand. After all, 70% of people say they'd rather learn about products through content rather than through traditional advertising. But is either content marketing or native advertising a surefire way to boost brand awareness and which one offers more bang for the buck? Okay, you got me. You got me there. But then it goes completely off the rails. This company, um, a content marketing firm called Fractal, I think it is, they collaborated with Moz to survey 30 agencies. So it's already, it's the click clacking over the tracks now, 30 agencies specializing in content marketing about the content formats and metrics they use to track ROI. And they, then they say, we'll get to what we found below, but first let's remind ourselves how each approach is different. And then they go on to completely just butcher a definition of content marketing. Basically, what they say is content marketing agencies produce campaigns for brands and then pitch these to multiple top-tier publishers for coverage. That's their definition of content marketing. Every time a publisher writes about a campaign, it will usually link back to the company as the source. These links increase a company's organic search rankings, direct traffic to the company's website, and drive user engagement for the brand and social media. That is not content. I mean, you, I don't even know what part of content marketing anywhere. You, it's like I looked, I, I Googled content marketing, and of course we come up really high there, and I Googled definition of what universe does that definition even appear? I mean, that sounds like traditional PR to me. It doesn't even sound like anything resembling content marketing. And then they go on to sort of show this two-column uh, comparison on goals, KPIs, and channels and benefits of content marketing versus native advertising. And then the content marketing column, they put in things like search engine rankings, brand awareness, conversions, number of leads, high-quality links, total social shares. These are the KPIs and goals of these kinds of things. 
And then they go on to compare this to native advertising and then come to the conclusion, dun, 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 they actually come to the conclusion that content marketing is better in some ways than, uh, than native advertising based on a couple of other studies that they went out and found. They went and looked at the cost, you know, a cost basis of native advertising by going out and looking at that uh, study that Relevance did, which is a great study. I'm not, we've talked about it on the show. Fine study. Great starting point. But they use that as sort of their cost basis for how they're sort of determining ROI. So instead of actually asking the agencies which ones really performed better – or in their weird sort of mixed up methodology anyway, they actually didn't do that. They actually went to a cost basis of some other study. So it was kind of like they just looked at these two things and went, yeah, this one feels better. This, yeah, this one, all right, let's go with that. And to me, I mean, so, okay, the article has got problems, fine, whatever. But the, the problem, the real disappointing thing for me is HBR here because this, like, made, this made my heart sink, right? I was like, really? This is what I'm trying to – I've been spending the last three months trying to tweak every letter of my post to make sure that it's HBR worthy and this is what gets into – so it was a real – it was like a totally you know, Victoria, Victoria, there is no Santa Claus because this really bummed me out. All right, so end of rant. Yes. I don't have much more to comment on it, except I just want to be fair, uh, or at least try to. Uh, so Mike Myers comments on this below. You know, so it's a great comment. He's basically agreeing with you, uh, but also says it's really important to show that this was done with content marketing agencies, which may explain the agency's general struggle, in my opinion, with transitioning to a content marketing offering. So I thought that was insightful. It's sure. like, since you're yeah. going well, out and, and at the, like I said at the beginning, this is you know going out to agencies and saying you know let's let's help define ROI of, of content marketing over native. But I would also say I bet you it wasn't pure content marketing agencies. I bet you it was search agencies. No, of course yeah, it's, it's not. Search. It's not. Yeah, it's absolutely not. It was search agency. Well, they did it in conjunction with Moz, which you know, and I love Moz, but Moz is an SEO. Focus, comes at it from a search search you know, standpoint. They come at it from a search. So the agencies they're going to have are, you know, and we've talked about this, that search agencies are merging into being content marketing agencies. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a great evolution. Love to see it. But they're going to come to it with a distinct point of view. So uh, I, just, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to sound mean. I, I just well, uh, the, the thinking is what bothers me so, here, not the not the individual. Yes, totally, involved. totally agree with you. So Kelsey, who is the author of this from Fractal. You know, because I love the comment. You know, you know, I always read the comments on these articles because I want to get. Yeah, and so there's right. a lot of people saying, "Hey, Content Marketing Institute has this definition. You didn't really follow it." Kelsey says, "Look, con- we know content marketing is a broad term for the purposes of this study. We narrowed the focus to to this, which of course is still not really content marketing, but okay. But that would be helpful in the story." Like that kind of right. thing has to be looked exactly for the purposes of this study. Content marketing. We looked only at ser- the exactly. search engine a- attributes of content marketing versus native advertising. That would have been much. We looked better. only at right. It's and but broadening it out to comparing the ROI of content marketing and native advertising, which is what the headline says. Sort of just it. It yeah. I I love. Harvard Business Review as well. And when I was at Penton, we had a subscription to HBR, and I read you know multiple articles every time. But I I think you would take it off your bucket list. I really do. I 
No, I don't know if it's well. Come maybe off or it's not. just the I don't print. know if it's going to come off or not. I I like. I mean, I've been a subscriber for gosh twenty years. I mean, it's just it's been it's such a core part of my learn. You know, well anyway, I don't want to go off on a, another rave or a rant about HBO. But you know, that's the but yeah. There's look. I get it. I get that business models are changing. I I get it that publishing models are changing. But the first what's the first thing I said to you? I can't believe HBR published this. That's the yeah. first thing I said. I, I mean, it has nothing to do with, hey, great job for Fractal for getting it out there. Great. Oh, I mean, yeah. Totally I'm, props yeah. to them. Goodness gracious. That's I mean, wonderful. But I don't I don't understand the process. I'd love to know what the process was. So there you go. Yeah. There you have it. All right. What do you got? I have um, – I can't go into so much detail because, honestly, I feel that if anyone um, is personally affected by – autism in some way if you have someone that you know you're blessed to have on on the autism spectrum in your life that you should watch this video so and and i'll talk about that but then i'll and i'll bring in the content marketing because i think it's really relevant so this is a ted talk it was sent to me by my good friend uh michael hurley oh i have to remember that copy ranner piece we've got to show out a little love because that piece was uh, from Robert Katai. We didn't show out some love to him, so thank you, oh, Robert. Yes, uh, thank hat you, Robert. Hat tip to you that. for yeah. sending that out. Hat to big hat. So to on yeah. this rave, this this was t- sent to me a couple weeks ago, actually, by Michael Hurley, good friend of mine. He's now running business development over at Rodale, and he sent this over to me because he knows that you know we have you know we've been doing. Uh, charity work in uh, the autism realm for a long time we started the the foundation orange effect foundation specifically for speech therapy needs for yep. um, children with autism it's amazing so yeah i mean it's a forgotten it's a forgotten area i mean everybody talks about you know research and all that stuff that autism speaks does but a lot of people need speech therapy and that's really super important because you have to I mean, because they learn differently and it's it's really it's nothing wrong with it. It's just we learned if it's like a, in this video, you'll see it. They It's basically like having a different operating system. It's it, you just deal with the different you, you use the operating system differently. But anyways, it's whole forgotten history of autism. It's really fascinating the way that he goes through it. So Steve Silverman talks about this and he was on a basically a crusade to figure out how did we go from one in 5,000 kids with au- diagnosed with autism to one in 68. Do you believe that now, Robert? It's one wow. in 68 now. That's amazing. And basically his whole thing was when, you know, this is, you know, Dr. Lee O'Connor back in 1943 with Johns Hopkins, he talks about how it was really prescribed as something really negative. And he would say that it was caused uh, by cold. And I wrote this down because I, I couldn't believe it. So it was caused in a lot of cases, from cold and unaffectionate parents, like, huh. and this is something that you know, kind of went through, and not a lot of you know, they, it basically was an accepted story that was wow. going on, and then, and then, then there was this other doctor in Germany called uh, Doctor Asperger, so where we get that whole thing from, Aspergers, and basically treated it as these are like little professors that just learn differently. And we have to uh, set up our processes differently so that they can learn more. Huh. They, they can use their gifts more effectively. And so there was a much more positive way to look at it. But what I, you know, how I'm going to make this connection? So basically, watch the video; it's totally worth it. But I'm going to how I'm going to make the uh, case to content marketing is there were everybody was just accepting that this was this rare thing, and if it was di- if it, there, if you knew somebody with autism that. It was a disorder. It was something really, really negative. 
and a lot of people were put in homes and and they were basically wow. put away for having this kind of thing that really in what uh, Steve Silberman says is is not that it basically I wrote this down too it's the 1 in 68 it would be one of the largest minority groups in the world which huh. is interesting to wow. think about it that way that's amazing isn't that something but basically how it became more diagnosed because nobody really knew about it until I think it was the year 1988. Do you remember what movie came out in 1988? Was it Back to the Future? No, it's not, but Rain Man. Oh, oh wow. Rain All Man. Right. And so he talks about this, and this is where I was, oh, wow. where the power of story comes in. Sure. Because he said now that it, it gave prominence to this thing called autism, and doctors who never even knew about it before now started to learn about it because of this story that was called, that, that was told called Rain Man. And it was sort of this, it's almost like the same thing that Andrew Davis talks about that when Finding Nemo came out, you know, everybody rushed to the store to buy Nemo's and there was a global shortage of clownfish. It's the same type of power that can happen. Uh, but then now the medical community started to get behind it. And now, you know, we're sort of celebrating this more as just a different way to learn, like that different operating system. But I just, the importance of this was how. A piece of content, a piece of information like this movie can make uh, such an impact and take all this like history of negativity around autism. And, and basically, you know, long story short, the case is being made that it's not that it, I don't know if you remember this. Um, you know, this is years ago when another doctor and I, I can't remember the name of the doctor, but was saying, oh, it's vaccines. Like, yeah, don't get right. vaccinated yeah. because that's right. why autism is going up, which from what I'm reading and from what Steve Silberman says is completely not true. So it's not that um, we're seeing a rampant rise in autism. It's that it's being diagnosed is what he's, yeah. is what he's saying. It's just this is it. This is the ch- now I don't know if it's, is it overdiagnosed. I mean, you could make there's a lot of people that would say that. But I just think it's interesting that it took a piece of content to get it to a point where the medical. So it was a piece of mainstream content that got the medical community behind it to do something about this. And and here's where we're at. So I just thought amazing. Fantastic. Well worth 13 minutes of time uh, if you get it to watch the video. And we'll, of course, put that in the show notes. Fantastic, fantastic! Oh, I, I'm totally gonna go watch that video. I have. That's I have a tough amazing. time getting through it. I mean, as as most people know, oh. you know, my son, my son's on the yeah, spectrum, and and we've been yeah. involved in the community for a long time, and you know, I, well, you do amazing work there. I mean, it's unbelievable the work you do well, there. Well, I, I mean, and my wife is really the the key person behind that. But I, I think that that that's kind of our thing. That's our charity. Yeah. That's, you know, we've been doing this for nine years and we've been able to raise over a hundred thousand dollars specifically going to that little niche of speech therapy, because there's so much funding going on in autism right now and in and around autism. And that's fantastic. But what I feel is we've had some governmental grants and other things that have been drying up and there's people that actually so if, if you're at a certain age, you're at a critical age, if you're two or three years old or even five years old and you are diagnosed with autism, if you're on the spectrum and you don't get speech therapy of some kind or play therapy of some kind, it could it's detrimental yeah, to yeah. you being able to be whatever you want to be. Be a human, yeah. Right. Yeah, be a yeah. human being. And that was right. that was Joshua. I mean, Joshua was three years old, he was grunting at best. And now he's, you know, he's in regular school. He's doing his thing. You'd barely even tell. I mean, he completely thinks differently about life. And that's great. (laughs) You know, he's got a different operating system. He learns at a different rate. And it's fantastic. And, you know, people say, ask me a lot. And by the way, and I, it's, he's not, um, 
he's not way high on the spectrum. So it, it's it's tough where, uh, you know, you, I talked to some other fathers and, and mothers and they're really str- – I mean, it it's it's tough. It's, the kids can't even speak. Uh, they have trouble walking around. Those types of things are, are right. challenging. So, But still, if you're at an age – like if Joshua wouldn't got speech therapy at that age, you know, I don't know what – I don't know what he'd be doing right now. So right. that that's why we started the foundation. And, 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 of course, people that are coming to Content Marketing World this year will see a ton of stuff about the foundation because we're going to try to drive as much revenue to help specifically help those families that just those government grants, they just can't get the funding to get the speech therapy. So that's what we're going to focus on. So there you go. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff, my friend. Just Just amazing. All right. Well, moving on to our This Old Marketing, the namesake of our show. And... Here is an interesting fact. Um, did you? I don't even. Joe, did you know this? I did not. In 19, I did not. Here, in, in, well, you don't even know what I was going to say. I did not know anything about this. All right. No, <laughs> but you don't know the fact. Hold on. I'm going to ask you this. Okay. Did you know that in 1929, more than 55% of the radio programs were financed or directly produced by companies or their agencies? I did not know that, but it does Isn't not. Isn't that an amazing me. statistic? Yes. It, it's fascinating. I love it. And so one of those shows, so we have talked at great length on this show and in other places around the wonderful work that Kraft has done in the content marketing space. They are certainly one of the early adopters here. They are moving the needle in terms of what they're doing from a business efficacy standpoint and the way they approach content marketing. But I found this and digging through the archives here, and it just fascinated me because this is something – that was around <clears throat> even during the early 30s. So there was a show on the radio called The Craft Music Hall. The Craft Music Hall, it, it debuted in, at, at, at June 26th, so just we're almost on the anniversary of it, 1933. It was a musical variety program, and it featured, at the time, orchestra leader Paul Whiteman, who was known as the King of Jazz. Um, the very He was arguably, at that point, the first popular music superstar. He was sort of the ongoing host and sort of music guy and basically played all of the music, and they played jazz and swing and blues, and they played all these wonderful things. Um, and they, they, they started this radio show in, the 19, in 1933. In 1936, this very young, sort of talented guy by the name of Bing Crosby took over as the master of ceremonies and took over, and he was the master of ceremonies up until 1946. And there was all kinds of people who ran through this radio show that ultimately also became a TV show, by the way, um, that were people including... Uh, Victor Borgia and Mary Martin um, and all these people that we sort of know is sort of classic from classic vaudeville, classic movies, classic music. Um, and basically one of the reviews at the time in Billboard magazine called it basically a tribute to the program's highlight was that the music hall seems to survive all of the talent change. Basically it always survived the ability to change out the content performers that were within it. And they basically pointed up to the fact that Kraft – really created this uh, whole thing to be able to create this valuable experience of, 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 of music. And then for the advertising, so what they did was, the advertising, it was absolutely, they kept to their guns here that all of the advertising was kept completely separate. Very much in, in, in line with the way we do this podcast. You'll hear it in a lot of podcasts today where you take a minute, you go, now we're going to, you know, we're just going to insert a little bit of, so it was in stream, in stream of the show, but they did it very, very, very cautiously. They had a whole separate announcer guy who would come on 
and basically give the very, very short. They Each one of them were like seconds long because their whole thing were if you would keep people to stay tuned to the content, they would actually stay tuned through the advertisement as well. And and, and they actually give an example here of, of how Bing Crosby would say basically something like, you know, check it, friends. The Charlotteers are going to further demonstrate how their musical talents will and you'll enjoy them. But first, my colleague's going to glibly hustle some prospective purchasers. So he's totally making fun of the fact that they were going to actually do an ad in the middle of this show. And they would do basically a 30-second spot extolling the virtues of a craft dinner or something like that, macaroni and cheese, all that kind of stuff. And this show basically went on uh, until uh, uh, the, the, the late 40s and then moved on to even television beyond that. And just a wonderful example of this old marketing, I think. That's fantastic. I mean, it's it's so incredible. All these older uh, case studies we're finding that it almost seems like it was more pre- prevalent in the past. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's much I more just, accepted. Like, it. hey, we need a we need an underwriter. I was gonna or, or the the marketing person. Here's comes some up content, with that. and we can yeah, we can produce that. We can actually produce that and create it and. All this kind of stuff. And the thing I love about this is that, you know, here in the 1930s, radio was still a new technology. This is kind of what we're seeing today is that brands are taking advantage of a new technology to produce their own content and actually take advantage of the new, you know, the new content technology. In their case, radio. And in our case, the Internet. And it's interesting that the the example you're talking about actually then moved to another new technology, television, exactly. in 1958. Exactly. So, That's so right. incredible. Fantastic. Well, I know what you're doing right. next week. I know what you're doing next week. We're, we're all going to be together, and we're going to share a couple of cocktails and just relax for like five days. So it's I'm I'm truly looking forward to it. Remember, it is a me- it's a business meeting. It's a yes, very it's a business. Yes, I'm business sorry, meeting. I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll be, and if, we'll be if discussing is, business things, if, business if, things, if, and other business. If there are drinks to be things. had. They are they are they are had, but it's totally They're separate very, very of the meeting yes. part of the of the whole thing. I'll so be in business casual. Doing business things with a business tone, <laughs> but there will be no PNR, which is why we that's right today. Well, there will be PNR. We're just doing it here. That's right. You're just getting it. Yeah, you're so. just getting it early. That's it. Okay. Well, let's not belabor this any longer. That is it um, for episode eighty-seven for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, thank you again so much this week. A number of hashtags, uh, uh, callouts for stories. Hashtag this old marketing. If you want to suggest a story for us, and you know, if you've got a question, you can also send it. An email this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode number 87, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we have and we talked about today will be available in not only the show notes that we have within the PD, uh, the, the, the iPod uh, uh, sort of podcast, but also available on Saturday at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.